And then when somebody says to you, your son is blind, in one little sentence and in an instant, it everything, that whole picture was dark, extinguished. And now, coming to you from the K2 Studios in San Diego, California, it's the world-famous Chris and Christine Show. Hey, what's happening, everybody? How you doing today out there? I am Chris. And I'm Christine, and welcome to episode 61 of the Chris and Christine Show. Do, 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 do. Yes. I think our episodes are getting up there into retirement age. Which is about the same age as you are for your birthday. It is birthday time, my birthday weekend. Thank you so much for everybody that has appreciated my birthday, especially myself. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you for all of the gifts. We have a truckload of them for you, Chris. We do? Um. It, yes, it's imaginary. And it's filled with air. No, 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 <laughs> no, nope, nope. I reject your air gift. I want real gifts. Well, you know what the benefit of having air gifts is, is you can use your imagination to make them into anything you want. <laughs> and you can carry them upstairs because they're weightless. I guess so. They can, they can ride up on my invisible elevator as it comes up to the second floor here. They're as heavy as all my hopes and dreams. <laughs> oh, Wow. <laughs> That was pretty good. You got to admit it. It was very good. You were clever today. Well, thank you for listening to our podcast and thank you for all your wonderful birthday wishes for me. I turned the great age of 22 years old today. Times two. Yes. I just didn't do the math on that correctly. <laughs> I was looking at it wrong. The numbers are bunched up on the paperwork here. Well, you were just like a glass half empty kind of guy instead. Yeah, right. Absolutely. So, Christine, what has been happening this week? Well, I know what's been happening for me. I've been on vacation. It's been vacation, Chris, in the house all week. You didn't even stop to ask me. You just started talking about you. I always ask you about your week. Ask oh, me oh, first. Sorry. Okay, we'll do this over again. Um, so, Christine, what's been going on your your work week this week? Well, my week in general has been okay, except for the fact that Ruby Red, Ruby Ride is in the shop for the second time no this week. way. <sighs> what did you do, honey? Well, I did nothing. She came to me broken and I have just carried her all along all of these months, but she was brand new, 2020, and her backup camera has not worked very well since the day I bought her. So we finally took it in yesterday because the backup camera was recalled. And then they said that they fixed it and that they had to, you know, take all of this and that apart and, you know, resync and update. And then we walk into the dealership and I said, Chris walked in with me because he had to, you know, drop me off. And I said, if we go in there, you're not talking this time because you cut me off this morning when I was dropping it off. And what did you say? Well, this morning? I actually didn't uh, go no, in there. No, yesterday. Yesterday you were like, I'm not going to, I'm just going to stand there. I'm going to be silent. I never said that. Yes, you did. I never agreed you to totally that. totally did. You were like, I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going with you to pick it up. And then what happens the minute that I go in to get my paperwork and well, you talk want, to Carlos, the tech? I wanted to be very clear that the camera system but is what's the problem is that the backup camera wasn't working. How can an update, like updating your phone, fix a broken camera? That I did not understand. Right. So you made them explain it to you, even though I said that they tested everything and disconnected it and then had you to didn't update say it. You did that. I did. It's in a text. And then 
you ask Carlos, the technician, what he did. And I called you out on it. And I looked at the girls working behind the counter and I say, wait a man, explain me. And what did you do? You put your hand up and you shushed me. That's right. You, put your hand, said, you shushed me. I said, shh, women, woman. <laughs> I, I am talking you here. Said, no, what you said is, shh, I'm trying to listen to him. That, well, that's true. I was trying to listen to the poor guy. He's trying to tell me. And his- I was like, I already told you, you don't need to get a second explanation. Well, I know everybody listening right now, you're probably thinking, gosh, first world problems here, right? Your backup camera's oh, not working. For sure. Gender inequity. Gender inequity. I mean, what do you do when, when your backup camera doesn't work and they screw up your latte at Starbucks? I mean, what are you going to do? Well, today I made a cure for it is I made Chris go with me, but he had to drive his car in his pajamas. So then I knew that he would stay in the car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wasn't even ready yet. He's like, no, no, no. I'll just wait in the car. I'm like, good, good. Let the woman handle it. So what did they say today? Have they got back to you yet? Um, No, they haven't. Well, hopefully they keep it there till they fix it. You know, they might they actually- asked, they did ask, do we want do you want us to call you or should we call your husband? Did they say that really? Yes. And, and I told them the only phone number's on there is the one that owns the car, which is mine. I will handle my own car repairs. Thank you very much. I pay the bill. Call me. That's right. Because you mansplained me. I didn't mansplain you. Did. You did. I did not mansplain you. <sighs> All that to say, thank you for going with me and asking them the questions. And I told them when I dropped it off, my fiance, soon to be husband, is not going to be very happy with the fact that I have to leave it here a second time in a row. And mind you, I used that today when I talked to the plumber also, and, and they told me they couldn't come till Tuesday. Oh, you finally talked to them. Yeah, huh? for the dishwasher. And I said, my husband will be very upset. He'll be very upset to hear that it's going to be a delay until Tuesday to fix the dishwasher. Very upset. I don't know how I'm going to tell this to him. He's going to be very upset. <laughs> and she said, um, well, you know, I understand. And I said, no, you don't. He's going to be very upset. So I tried. And I try to use that sometimes. My husband, well, because you've started calling me wife, you know, we're three weeks away. So my husband, I tried to use that card, will be very upset that we will not have a functioning dishwasher now until next week. And then what they say? They said, well, we'll come out and see if the reason that it's broken was from the tech capping off that thing in the dishwasher. And if it is not a result of that, it will be chargeable. They will have to charge us. Charge us? No, we go straight to the home warranty and we go to them. So, But, but if we call them out here and what they need to fix on the dishwasher, because now the dishwasher is broken isn't the result of their negligence, we're going to have to pay them for coming out. So the question is, do you want to just go through the warranty right now? Um, You know, I might just put it in because I, I can always cancel it. You know, I might just do that. Oh, thank you. Oh, wait, wait. Who was the one that recommended that two days ago? Uh, you did. Thank you. But I was trying I'm to woman explaining you. <laughs> put, the, put the warranty in, Christopher. But I was trying to fix it myself. I was going in there like tinkering around. Like, let me see if I can do this. Your but- tinkering consisted of putting another dishwasher pot in and pressing buttons. The same thing I did. <laughs> But but I did it differently. I did it this. I used extra force, extra love. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, enough about me complaining about my week. What has been happening in your week? Well, thank you for asking, Chris. Uh, Christine. Chris. Oh my gosh, what did you almost call me? <laughs> Myself. I don't know. But I've been on birthday week all week long on vacation. It's been great. I don't have to worry about doing nothing. Well, well, when you meet, say that you don't have to worry about doing nothing, 
that nothing consists of you fixed the filter in the air conditioner, you're watering the front lawn, you've been washing all of the dishes by hand, you've been doing the laundry. So if that's your definition of nothing, do nothing every day. <laughs> well, don't forget the I did the uh, mow the lawn too and did the backyard. Remember that? Yes, you did. Um, yes, you did. And you took the trash cans out and you brought them back in and then you hauled me back and forth to get my car fixed. So your staycation and has been- And with the dinner. Oh, you took me on two dates this week. And last night, we made a special trip to the Ikea store. Yes. You were like a kid in the candy store. Like, oh, look at this little scooper. What does it do? Do we need this, babe? Do we? What about these Tupperware containers? Look at these lids. They fit the glass ones and the plastic. How many should we get? Like seven? Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm like, oh, look, it's only $2.99. Let's get five of those. I will say, I think I, I didn't think it was possible, but I do think I felt a little bit more in love with you at Ikea last night. Oh, yeah. Why is that, babe? Um, Because you found joy in buying house stuff and you did not balk at the fact that I bought 35 different sizes of k- pillar candles for the wedding. Yeah. Well, it's all for the wedding. So, I mean, it's like you're going to use it for that. I understand that. It's wedding stuff. I get that. But I'm talking about stuff we're going to use at the house. And I do think we do have a gift registry figured out for the wedding. So we shouldn't really be spending a lot of the household junk right now. But right, which is why I didn't want you to buy a dishwasher tray for dishes to dry out on. And you insisted on getting it. And I said no. And I put my foot down. And you actually listened only for the dishwasher to break this morning and for you to end up having to hand wash and dry all of the dishes. I know. Until the dishwasher is fixed, we're going to have to dry them, do it the old-fashioned way. And to tell you the truth, I actually find joy in doing dishes and putting them on the little rack. Oh, I'm so glad. Do you also find joy in um, doing laundry? Because I'd be happy to give you that task from now on. I do find doing laundry very rewarding, but I only like doing small batches of laundry. I don't want your entire closet just dumped in my lap uh, covering the entire floor and say, do this. No, I'm talking about one load at a time. Well, you know, you can do one load at a time, like one load this hour and one load next hour and then one load in three more hours. And I would be totally okay with that. I will say that having you home on staycation has reminded me of just how how helpful it is to have a partner around home that can help carry the load. And I really didn't have that when I was a single parent for all those years. Yeah, I didn't really have it either. And I think that today's guest has a really unique spin and a unique perspective on single parenting and overcoming a lot of life's challenges. And she's just a very remarkable single parent that is an advocate for her children. And we're going to have her coming up right after this. Hey there, K2 crew. We love having you as our loyal listeners. To keep up to date with what's happening behind the scenes, check us out on social media. Yeah, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to follow our Facebook page. Yeah, tag us in your favorite fun stories. And guess what? You might just end up on the show. The Pod Breed Network is strictly for the small podcasts that are up and coming in the vast world of podcasting. Podbreed is made up of many diverse podcasts coming together to achieve the same goal of being the best damn podcast network on the planet. Find out more at podbreed.com. Today's VIP guest is pretty amazing, everyone. She is a mom to three fantastic kids, co-creator of the Brilliantly Resilient podcast, author of the book, 
Thriving Blind, Stories of Real People Succeeding Without Sight, which achieved number one on Amazon's new release list. And she is passionate about supporting and empowering individuals experiencing blindness. Welcome to the show, Kristen Smedley. Oh, Chris and Christine, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be on today. Well, thank you, Kristen, for being on the show. It's kind of we got Christine, Kristen, and Chris. It's all these too many, <laughs> too many Chris's in here. I know it's like the K three show today instead of the K two show. Hey, I was so stoked to see all the K's. I'm like, finally, finally, all <laughs> on one show. Okay, <laughs> fantastic. So, Kristen, now what? I have to ask you before before Chris jumps in. I have to ask you, Kristen. Growing up, did people always misspell your first name? Wait, they still do. They still do. Yes. I said to my mom one time, you know, my mom is one of those people that had like baby books and for all of us, I have four brothers and she has a lot of meaning behind stuff and all that. And I was like, mom, what's the, what's the big story behind me being an IN and everyone else being an EN? Like, and I'm on the edge of my seat and she goes, oh, I spelled it wrong. Oh, <laughs> no. No, no, no. We need a good story. Come up with something. I'm like, wah, wah. Like, come on. <laughs> Do well, they misspell yeah. it with a CH instead of a K, too? You know, there, it's not so much of the C anymore. It's always an EN, so much so that my website, I had to buy Kristen with an EN also so and redirect it because I knew people would type it in wrong. You know, we had this, <laughs> we had the same exact problem with us because um, when we said our name is Chris and Christine, people automatically want to spell it with a CH, CH. And, yeah. um, but no. Yeah, so. you guys are unique with the K. I will say that. Well, here's a little. Here's a little yes, tr- we are. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, thank you so much, and thank you for coming on our show. Chris today. was going to give up our secret. Oh, I Chris, can't. Chris, you were going to give up our secret, weren't I you? I, I know. I was just about to drop, spill the beans, but I can't do All that. All right, you can spill oh, the beans. It's okay. Go ahead. Okay. The truth, truth be told, I'm really Chris with a C, but don't tell anybody. All right. <laughs> <laughs> it just it looks, looks much better with the case, right? It, well, exactly. I figure we got it. Someone's got to chase. Someone's got to flip flop. It's either me or Christine. Christine's like, I ain't flip flopping. I ain't changing my name. I'm like, well, it's like you're a Hollywood star. You have an alias, you know? It, so, exactly. So I'm not spotted yeah. in public, you know? So yeah. uh, <laughs> you throw them off. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, so we are very excited to have you on the show today virtually, but where are you physically in the world right now, Kristen? I am a Philly girl. I'm in Philadelphia. Philly on the East Coast. girl. That's fantastic. Now, I love a good Philly cheesesteak. I mean, are you, are you a fan? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Probably not the same spots that you go to when you come out here, but um, Philly natives know all the good spots to go to. Well, let's be clear. Chris doesn't get Philly cheesesteaks from Philly. He's never really been there. So he gets the <laughs> California version. So we need to know <laughs> when we come visit, where do we need to go? You got to go to Steve Steaks. That's the big secret of, of those of us that are actually from Philly. Yep. Now, what, that's, that's the 411. What makes a Steve's Philly cheesesteak any different than, say, a regular? What's the, what's the missing ingredient? You know, for me, it's the way that they uh, cook and chop the steak. And the number one differentiator of the steak here in Philly and all over the country is the roll. It is all about the roll. I could that, do a whole podcast on that. That's what I heard. <laughs> you know, there, there was a place out here um, locally I should go to called Philly Franks, I think it's called. And they were from Philly and they, they were very 
prideful in the way they made their Philly cheesesteaks that they actually put up a little barrier behind the kitchen that you could not see them actually making the Philly cheese. That, that's how like they, that secret was like, we are keeping it from anybody else. This is how we do it. It's exactly like I do in Philly. They were from Philly and they're really good. I loved it. Wow. Wow. That sounds like a Philly thing to <laughs> walk everybody out and keep it their way. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> So how long have you lived in the Philadelphia area? Born and raised. I was born and raised here, um, was out and about around the country when uh, when I was married early in in that journey. And my two, two of my three kids were actually born in Chicago because I was out there for six years. That's a great town. That's a really great town. So what brought oh, wow. you to Chicago? It was uh, my former husband's job. He was climbing his corporate ladder and I was following around, having babies, flipping houses, you know, and uh, it was back in the late 90s, early 2000s when lots of us were doing that kind of thing. And I mean, it it took me by way of Kansas City, Chicago, Connecticut. Like I did get to see some really cool towns, but Chicago was my favorite outside of, of Philly. That was fun. Well, we heard you mention having kids. So, and I mentioned you have three fabulous kiddos. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about them. Yeah, they're uh, actually my middle son Mitchell calls he he's 17 now. He calls Chicago his birthplace. <laughs> like he's a famous <laughs> president, right? Right. So funny. They um, you know, I I say that I if I can jump into a little bit of my journey here in the beginning, my um my whole life I had planned to be an elementary school teacher. And I, I think that, you know, as I'm an adult now, I mean, I just turned 49 and I tell this story often. I look at people's faces and I'm realizing that I guess it's quite unique that from, I knew from when I was like five years old, honest to God, that I wanted to be a teacher. I've, I mentioned I have four brothers. I used to like sit them down in these little chairs and do stuff <laughs> on the chalkboard. And in elementary school, I would bring home like my extra papers and worksheets and give them out and they would have to do stuff, you know. But I just I just knew my whole life I wanted to be a teacher and I planned for all of that. And and I knew I wanted to get married. I knew I knew the life I wanted to have. And I'm very much a planner um, very much a Virgo and checked all the boxes. But I, I, you know, I planned all my plans for my life, but I dreamt the biggest dream of my life was to be a mom. And I, I guess it's because I have the most extraordinary role model in my mom and my dad. I have, I have incredible parents. I had, um, an incredible grandmother. Like I just had really good nurturing, fun people. So I couldn't wait to be a mom. And um, in the year 2000, you know, I remember that um, that New Year's Eve going into 2000 and people that are, are my age and around my age will remember everyone was planning for the world to shut down for Y2K. Right. Oh, yeah. And I was um, I couldn't wait because my first child was born January 29th of 2000. It was the greatest January of my life. My Michael oh. King. Oh, wow. King yeah, it was magnificent. <laughs> that, that's fantastic. Um, it's just to say that uh, you were want to be a teacher. Now, Christine over here, she her entire life has been in education. Well, yep. How about that? Yeah, I was just listening to one of your episodes, and you were talking about an ed tech company that you started in this virtual nightmare that's happening for students. That's really cool. Thanks. Yeah, um, I work in education full time, but I get that. Like, it, I think it is a different breed of person when you grow up <laughs> and you know that you want to go into education. And my oldest sister did that. And I remember her sitting us down in the desks and <laughs> teaching, trying to teach me <laughs> math that she was learning in her classrooms. And I think that dream of a teacher does start from an early age, but um, it 
something in your story is making me think that you didn't quite follow that path. Yeah. Um, you know, I was saying that, that when Michael was born, I mean, it just, my life was, it would, Hollywood would call it the picture perfect scene. It was, um, he was actually, he was born on Oprah's birthday. Like you couldn't in Chicago, like you couldn't get much better. I, I was, wow. Yeah. And, um, it was, like I said, it was 2000. It was when the McMansion homes had just come out. I had one of those, I had the brand new SUV, you know, I was in one of those neighborhoods where, you walk out the front door and everybody's sprinkler systems went on at the same time. Like yeah. it was, it was, I always say that now that, that two, year 2000, Kristen would get on 2020 Kristen's nerves. Like it was too perfect, you know, <laughs> it, um, but I was, I was living in gratitude every single moment because it was everything I always wanted. And there I was with my perfect little family and my perfect environment. And then at four and a half months old, um, a doctor told me that, Michael was blind. <gasps> and, oh, no. And yeah. Of, you know, of, uh, you know, people, uh, your, your audience that have, have had kids or carried a baby um, can probably empathize with the fact that as, as my belly was growing with Michael, you know, I had the dream of being a mom. And then when that little person starts moving and, and you, you read the what to expect when you're expecting book every single week, and you, you know, all the life that's in you and you start to have these dreams for that little person. And, you know, by the time Michael was born, I was, I was envisioning, is he going to be on the Phillies? Is he going to be on the Eagles? Will he be the quarterback, the pitcher? You know, I'm, I'm envisioning, him as the valedictorian on the stage and him summa cum laude at college. I mean, my dreams were just ginormous for him. I, I let go of all of mine for me. And it was all about this little person. And then when somebody says to you, your son is blind in, in one little sentence and in an instant, it, everything, that whole picture was dark, extinguished. Every dream was gone. And to know me as a planner and a dreamer, to have no plan and no dream and no direction, because all the doctor could say to me 20 years ago was, um, good luck. There was nowhere to go. Wow. Wow. So, um, you know, that was, it's still, my life is so much different now, but reliving that moment um, to tell the story. And it's important to to tell about that moment and to feel that again, because it fuels me every single day for the work I do now. But back then, I mean, I literally, you guys crashed to the floor and the doctor gave me about a minute of a sobbing, devastated, I don't even know if I was breathing. And he said, that Mm -hmm. waiting room is jam packed with more families and I'm going to need you to move into the hallway to compose yourself. Oh my gosh. Oh, wow. And, you know, as I was getting up, I said to him, I was like, and this is, this sounds ridiculous, but bear with me for a minute. I said to him, yeah. I wanted to know how blind, because I had known this little person for four and a half, five months at that point. And you couldn't tell? Nothing. Yeah, there was nothing. I knew his eyes were shaking and not focusing right. Right. But there was nothing in anything that was happening every day as I had him in my face every single day. Nothing told me that he was completely blind. And I said... I was like, how blind is he? Like, is he going to play baseball? Well, that was my barometer, right? Oh, like, okay. how blind is he? And he said, no. And I said, is he going to drive? And he said, no. I said, is he going to go to regular school? And he said, I doubt it. Wow. And 
you know, here I am, a teacher. You know, I had all these plans of what my life was like. I was an athlete growing up. I envisioned all these things, and they were gone. Right. Um, and I think, well, I know for certain now, um, for at least for me, being hopeless is the worst sensation, feeling, emotion, experience that a person like Kristen Smedley could ever experience. And I was the most hopeless at that point. Yeah, I wanted to just pause you in your story for a second and just relate with what you're saying. Like, I really empathize with it. And um, Chris knows this part of my journey, but my son Ezekiel, um, at 18 months old, we found out that he had um, total conductive hearing loss. And same thing, Mm -hmm. like, I knew that he was acting a little bit different. He wasn't Mm -hmm. necessarily turning and responding to me when I was calling him because he was a little bit bigger. But then when you go and the doctor says to you, your child is not hearing, Mm-hmm. And we don't know what the cause of it is at this point in time. It you immediately go into like this playing. It's almost like a movie reel through your brain of all of the things that your child might not get to experience, and it's a bit of a grieving process at the very beginning. And this altered state of reality that you enter into and try to like make your way through it. And I know that as I started to step out that journey with my uh, former spouse, I went through a really deep bout of depression while I was trying to figure out all of that and how to get him the help he needed. Did, did you struggle with anything like that? Oh, I was a mess. And I, I am, I, I always joke that my, my memoir would be called delirious optimist because I Hmm. am one of the most delirious optimists you could ever meet on the planet. And that Those first few years, those first three years of Michael's life, I just, and I I grew up deeply rooted in faith. And, and I, I mean, I, you talk about Hollywood, I slammed the door on faith. I slammed the door on optimism. I mean, I just went into a, I'm very, I was very good at, there was so much of Michael to enjoy and I enjoyed him during the day, but I still had regret deep in my bones of the life I was supposed to have, honestly. Right. That's what I kept thinking about that life that I had planned for and that wasn't fair. And I, I would smile and fake it all day long and all night long, I would pray blindness away. And then in the morning I'd walk in and knew he was still blind and the cycle would just start all over again. Um, But here's the thing. This seems bizarre to me now, and people in my world now crack up at this one, but Michael was the first blind person I ever met. Well, Uh, I think the odds are probably that, I mean, I mean, how often do you meet a blind person, you know? Right, right. I mean, my life is so different now, but back then at at 28 years old, I had never met a blind person. So, so this is, you know, and for everybody listening that is like, oh my gosh, this is too heavy. Here's, here's the lesson in that. I believe, and I know from my own journey, we are the most paralyzed, the most fearful about the stuff we don't know about. I mean, look at the world right now. People don't know about some stuff other people are going through and they're fearful of it, or they don't want to deal with it, or they act in really weird ways. It's, it's you know, uneducation is a horrible thing. Right. So, you know, I had to get educated. I didn't want to. It took me a while. I write in my book in the introduction about the first conference I went to for raising blind children. And it was like walking, I say that, you know, as I was walking into the conference room, 
the further I got in the room, I was walking away from my dreams and into my nightmare. But I feel like you have to go through that. You have to walk into the nightmare and sit with it. And if you read the intro, you'll see that that was the first biggest pivotal moment on my journey that I never saw until two years later when I, thank God, had a miracle moment. Yeah, I think that what you're saying is really important about the fear of the unknown. And uh, I remember being in college, my college roommate took me home for a weekend. Her sister was battling brain cancer and was experiencing Mm -hmm. blindness. And she was the first blind person that I had met. And we were at the dinner table. I didn't know how to function. I wanted to be helpful, but not overly helpful and offensive. And then I was paralyzed. Like, Mm -hmm. She asked for the butter and I just set it in front of her, not realizing she needed it in her hand. And, you know, it's this whole, well, I want to respect you and your independence. I also don't know how to function and I really don't want to look dumb in front of everyone or be insensitive. And so I can only imagine from a parent perspective how much more that's amplified with, you know, wanting to balance independence for your child and help them realize their dreams while still meeting their immediate needs. Well, you know, Christine, you bring up such an amazing point. And I want to, when this airs, I want to have that sound, the sound bite of what you just said. That's the biggest issue. One of the biggest issues with um, the horrible statistics the blind community are facing, because, you know, we, in all of our love of humans, don't want to offend, don't want to overstep, don't want, you know, it's all this, we don't want to hurt or whatever. Instead of us, I would love for us to, you know, flip a little bit and be a culture and it's so against our grain, but to be able to say, hey, you need the butter. I don't exactly know. Can you teach me how to make this happen? I've learned to be like that because of my boys. Um, But it's, it's, we all don't want to offend people. And we want to be sensitive. And then it ends up that, like you said, we're paralyzed. And then it just makes this whole vicious cycle go around. But that's really important, too. I'm glad that you acknowledged that and went through that. And that's what um, that's what we need to address and make people feel more comfortable with saying, hey, I don't know anything about this. How about you help me learn? Uh, Kristen, you said uh, boys. So you have uh, two boys that both are blind. Is that correct? Yeah. And it was actually when, so with the blindness that they have, it's called uh, labor's congenital amaurosis. And we have the CRB1 gene. LCA, labor's congenital amaurosis, LCA has about, I think that they've discovered about 25 genes now that they end up their own rare blindness. But um, with all of them, they, you stand a 25% chance with each pregnancy of having an affected baby. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so so delirious optimist Kristen heard for that statistic for a while and thought, oh, one in four, like I had one, I can have four, the rest of them won't be affected. And then, you know, math major in college, Kristen showed up and said, uh, dude, it's with each pregnancy. <laughs> like, right. wait a minute. So um there is a big age gap between my boys three and a half years because it took me a while to um, come to terms with, I'm from a very big family. Like I have four brothers. I have a, you mm-hmm. know, cousins that are nine in the family. There's just a lot of us. And I've always had a lot of people around and I couldn't fathom raising an only child. Most LCA families, if the first one is affected, there are no additional kids. It's too devastating. And right. 
I just finally, I mean, I was interviewing people. It was kind of, it was a little over the top, which is kind of my thing. But I finally was like, I, I think that I could handle two blind kids, like go for that risk as opposed to having an only child. I don't think I'd be able to do that. And then also the majority of that decision was, oh, come on, what are the chances that a second one would be affected? And I stayed in delirium until I was about seven and a half, eight months pregnant with my second baby. And I mean, there's one morning and you can, I'll, I'll give you the short version. You can listen to my Ted talk for the whole episode, but there was a morning that, uh, mathematical, smart Kristen kicked delirious Kristen right out of my brain because it was like, oh my God, I realized that 25% is a huge thing. And I, I, for lack of any better smart word, I sucked at raising a blind child at that point because I was still mad. I was mad and grieving and not moving forward. And as much as I was smiling and whatever. So I was having this moment where there was no way in hell I was going to do it again. And I let God know that in a real nice, nice, non-Christian way. (laughs) Well, there you go. There you go. Now you have three children, right? So the, um, the two boys are the ones that have the, the blindness and your third child, uh, is a girl, correct? And and she's, she's okay. How's she doing? Yeah. She, my oldest son always says that Carissa's eyes are fine. It's her attitude that... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Every now and again needs a check. <laughs> right, they're very, right. They're very much regular siblings. Yeah, she she might be a carrier. I haven't had her tested yet, but no, her eyes are not affected. Now, with your boys being um, um, blind, now are they fully one hundred percent blind, or could they see shadows or anything like that? They have a they have a probably it's less than 10% of the vision that you and I have. Mitch has some in his peripheral, like a teeny tiny sliver where he can pull his iPhone up and see some of it. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah, but they, Michael doesn't really have anything anymore. They're both Braille readers and they use a white cane and all of their, their phones, their laptops, everything talks um, because they really don't have that much functional vision anymore. So how did this shift your household? I know that you have two blind children and you went through some adjustment period of realizing life would be different, but what did it look like to raise two blind children in a seeing, primarily seeing world? Well, I'll tell you what, when, when I had my miracle moment, it was realizing that Michael was the happiest three and a half year old on the planet and blindness didn't bother him. And when I realized that blindness didn't bother him, it was how I was seeing it and and having all of my hopes and dreams extinguished as opposed to waiting to see what his hopes and dreams were. It changed everything. I became this like mega force of nature to understand every tool that they would need. Because the way I saw, I mean, I guess I kicked into teacher mode. And the way I saw it was there was nothing my boys actually are extremely above average intelligence and most CRB1 LCA kids are. Um, There was, there is no other physical limitation. They had nothing holding them back other than vision. If we allowed it to hold them back, which I didn't. So I set out now, this is remember this is 20 years ago. There was no Facebook. There was no Google. There wasn't anything like that yet, but uh, with the limited, you know, access, I did start finding, 
um, role models, people that were succeeding without sight, that were doing the things they wanted to do, um, scouring the world to find them. I did that over the course of 20 years um, and went about it as, look, we are going to, my, my goal was to get them everything they needed to level the playing field in a sighted world. You know, so um, Braille would level the playing field in the classroom. They needed to know Braille like like nobody's business, just as if I, w- I would have been on top of them like I was with my daughter about learning print. You know, all of the goals that I would have if they were sighted, just how are we going to tweak that for blindness? That, you know, the eventually got them the mobility instruction for with the cane to be independent. Everything to just level the playing field. Then it was up to them where they were going to go with it. And I, I will say, I mean, I'll just give you a few perks of that because I could go on for hours about, and I'm actually working on another TED Talk about this. When you have somebody that is blind, just right. blind is what I say. That's how my boys are. It's just blindness. We are not dealing with anything else and they are above average intelligence. Right. Once you get them the tools that they need and they could work technology, braille, they can work things out, figure things out. They they have this built-in resilience. They've been managing their IEP teams, the individualized education plan at school. They've been managing teachers, principals, um, you know, getting everybody on the same page with how to teach them. They have taught people how to teach them and how to work together with them um, since they were little. And by the time my boys were in high school, they managed everything. Michael, when he was looking at colleges, he had to go out and find the colleges, talk to them because I needed them to learn all of that in the safety net of my home where they could fail, which they did several times, pick them back up and learn instead of just putting them out in the world after 12 years of school and having them fail out there. But the benefit of that is my guys are worlds above their age group in terms of interpersonal skills, um, teamwork, organization, figuring stuff out. You know, they'll have a, a this whole coronavirus thing that's hit the world right now. My Michael, yes, he was upset. He came home from Penn State for spring break and never went back until seven months later. He was upset for about a month. And then while everybody else was, you know, kicking a rock because they had nothing to do and they're all annoyed with the world, him and his buddy started a podcast and now he's got a radio show on campus. Oh, that is my next question I was going to ask you. Are they big into audio and big into podcasting? Because I would be if I had their disability. I mean, I am now. I am already. But yeah. They, they, um, they got into sound in high school. Um, both of them were in all the sports. They've actually won baseball championships three years apart on sighted teams. They're the only blind kids that have played in our entire area. Wow. Um, and, but as the blindness was progressing, not necessarily that, well, I mean, they, it progressed, you know, it's a degenerative condition. They don't really have anything anymore, but it got, you know, you're, you can do everything when you're little. And then as the ages go up, you know, the, the, um, choices are very limited. Then you add in blindness and choices got very limited. Um, but one of the things that Michael did, I mean, he wrestled and did all kinds of things. He got into theater performing and he's a musician. He had a band and all, and then he just got turned on to sound. And it's like, it's amazing. Cause I watched my daughter go down a basketball court and her whole body lights up and you watch Michael at a piano or at a soundboard and his whole body lights up. It's incredible to watch him. Like wow. that's where he was destined to be. And he's now getting I, to do some really cool things with that too. Now I have a question for you, Kristen, because this is something that um, again comes from my own personal background. 
um, from being in education and also raising a child that is on the autism spectrum, do you find that individuals that you encounter in society um, try to hold lower expectations of your boys because of their disability? And if so, how do you handle that? Oh my gosh. I have a whole keynote speech on this. I call it learning to see, S-E-E, set extraordinary expectations because that expectation level, that's the biggest thing I I, I want my legacy to be in this world is that I, I was a part of changing expectations because when Michael, you know, I told you he's he's brilliant. That's not even being a mom. That's just look at his test scores and his IQ and all that. He sailed through preschool so much that they called me in and said, he's not blind. Oh, really? (laughs) He fooled all these adults, not even trying to fool them, but he, from the time he was born, just came up with little things to adapt to the world. That's why I didn't know, right? So then he gets to, uh, we moved back to Philly, thank the Lord. And when I found out I was pregnant with a third and things were just not going well in our home, and then we had a window of opportunity to get back to Philly, and I knew I was going to need family support. So that was a definite God moment on the journey that steered us back here because the support I would need after a while was uncanny. But um, when I handpicked the school district that Michael would start in kindergarten, and it is, well, probably on their website, they say it's top in the world, but it's top in the state. And we got there and they literally said in the individualized education plan, he would achieve at 70% was his max. That would right. be a hundred percent, you know? And I was like, well, I remember it was the, um, finding the cubby was the thing that set me, it like, like set me into crazed Tasmanian devil mom mode when they said he would only find his cubby 70% of the time to hang up his jacket. And I'm like, you should have seen me. I'm like, I know I've been out of the classroom for a while and I right. know that it's like everything's high tech. Does the, is the cubby like a holograph? Like, does it move? Why is he not this thing all the time? If, and they're like, no, it's nailed to the wall. Okay then. But here's the interesting part of that. I said to them, if that cubby doesn't move, nothing changes. And he's walking in there every single day. If he can't find it every single day, then we're teaching him wrong. We're not giving them the right strategy. So to your point of expectation, I looked at everybody and I thought, if you're only expecting him that the max he can do is 70% of the rest of the world, no wonder 70% of the blind community is unemployed. No one has the regular expectation. So I always say extraordinary, not like high achieving. I mean, out of the ordinary. That's what extraordinary means. So if you ordinarily believe that a blind person blind child can only achieve 70%, then we got to get out of the ordinary. We got to do things differently than have ever been done before to beat that. Because I knew that Michael could and Mitchell and Mitchell is so different from Michael. It's, it's obnoxious how different they are. And still, you know, same expectation, different plan because he's a different learner, different kid. He can drive you up and down the wall and laugh about it, but He's, he's hilariously funny. He just drives you crazy. Um, and both of them high achieving. But that whole expectation thing is actually what is causing all the problems. And it's rooted in my belief, it's rooted in perceptions. Because if you perceive blindness like I did in the beginning to be devastating, horrific, right. depressing, 
then you're going to live a devastated, horrific, depressing journey. Of that course. Kind of, it can go with like almost anything, you know, any kind of disability, any kind of setback people have. People have setbacks all the time. And I remember your podcast was talking specifically about major setbacks and how to um, come back from them. Now, you mentioned yeah. that the blindness, um, How what was the percentage of people who were unemployed that were, that were uh, blind? You said like 75%? 70%. 70%. What do the ones that are employed, what kind of careers do they usually go into? Well, see, this is, you're talking to the extraordinary person here, right? I looked at what are the typical things? There's a lot of programs in this country that are rooted in love and, and thriving. And I get it that, you know, they put blind folks to work in state buildings, um, state capitals, you know, doing cafeteria work and all that. It's wonderful. You know, it's a great employment initiative. But I was looking for the people that I put in my book. I was looking at the mountain climber. Eric Weimayer has climbed all seven summits of the world. Wow. It's amazing. Here's the thing. My Michael met Eric when he was six years old. Eric had just come off of Everest, the first blind man to summit Everest. And my Michael gets to meet him at six years old and he's cool and he's fun and all that. And I thought that I watched, I watched the moment and knew in that moment that nothing would hold Michael back because his mind was blown wide open. And he, to this day, looks at people, if a sighted person thinks less of him or thinks he can't achieve, and he's been denied jobs in the past eight months, simply because of blindness, he looks at people like, what is the matter with you? Do you not know what blind people can do? We run circles around you sighted people. That has been Michael's philosophy since he was six years old. Like, what are you kidding me? As long as they have the tools that they need, just like anybody else. And and Chris, to your point of just like anything else, you know, having the different perception um, whatever your perception is, that's what you're going to get. When I went through my divorce, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to be alone forever. This is the worst thing that could ever happen in my life. I'm never going to have a 50th wedding anniversary. What do you think I was? Pathetic and sitting on my couch. That, right? <laughs> like, come on. It's the way you look at it. It's the way, take for example, my daughter that's cited, right? She's born into this family of full inclusion. Everything's accessible when she arrives into the world. So her perception of something like a white cane is not devastation and sadness. It's a tool of independence. Like she sees it as a totally positive, just like I've got feet on my legs to walk. You also have a cane if you happen to be blind. She'll see a wheelchair as a tool for mobility. Like she doesn't see it the way the majority of the world sees it. And I want the majority of the world to see it like Carissa sees it. That's fantastic. That's a, yeah, that's really amazing. And so this experience of um, raising your boys who are blind, what has that launched you into, um, since you mentioned you're not in teaching anymore, but how have you spread this message with the world and what are you currently doing now? Yeah, so um, nine years ago, I had an opportunity, just the way that the world was um, evolving to get involved in funding research for my boy's blindness to reverse the blindness. Um, And I was full steam ahead on that. And then I figured, oh my God, how am I going to explain this to my boys that I'm working on a fix for something that I always said wasn't broken? Like, how do you translate that to a nine and six-year-old, you know? Wow, yeah. 
And, um, and then I sat them down. I've just learned with my kids. We're just, I'm just very, we have conversations. We have a very unique relationship when you've got two boys that have to rely on you um, to guide them uh, through a lot of situations. We just have a very open, amazing relationship. And I sat them down and talked with them. And their thing was this. They said they are 1000% comfortable in their own skin and don't especially at that point, did not feel the need to change their lives in any way like having vision. However, they are still painfully aware that they have a very privileged life with a mom that has dedicated every waking moment to getting them what they need and demanding it from society. There's not many blind kids that get that privilege. And my kids know that from the kids they've met. So their thing was, Yeah, go ahead and do the work on research because there's a lot of kids that could benefit from reversing their blindness. We don't know if we would take it or not, but what they said to me was they deserve the option for sight. Yeah. And they would take it or leave it when time came. So I said, That's a powerful statement. Yeah. Yeah. And they were young too. That's a statement that has upset some people. It has has me shunned from some communities. And you know what? I don't care. It was, you know, my boys, that's their that's their thing. I'm, I'm all over it. What I did realize when we started, I started this patient organization for their blindness. Um, once it hit the major media that there was a, we were having success with another gene um, in a clinical trial with reversing vision, and I started climbing the food chain around the world thanks to social media, I, mean, I was getting calls every single day from families saying, oh, cool, we're in. Call us as soon as this treatment is ready. And staying on their couches with their kids and not getting their kids out there to experience life. You know, wow, yeah. Thought, wow. shoot, we've gone in the wrong direction. Then I was kicking myself for about almost a year, like, oh, this is this is not good. I didn't know what to do. So then I I talked to my team and I said, you know what? This is against all recommendations from every nonprofit and probably every CEO, but I'm like, we gotta live in two lanes. We got to work on the research and fund that and get to know who's going to work on it in this world. And we also have to work on tools and resources for these families to to help their kids thrive. And for a couple of years, I don't know, I think that there was a window of about four and a half years that I did not sleep at all because that added, it, it double, tripled the workload. But I can tell you now that, that when people hear... Um, of Kristen Smedley and the CRB1.org and Thriving Blind. I mean, people come to me from all over the world uh, with all kinds of inherited retinal diseases, and they want they want information on the research, but they are also asking for the information on helping their kids thrive. And it's, to me, you know, I'll tell you what, I've raised $1.4 million in that in our nonprofit, and a good friend of mine here in my town has been a catalyst to help me make that happen. And when she said to Michael, right before he went to college, you know, are you so excited? Because I just testified at the FDA for the first ever approved gene therapy to reverse blindness. And she was so proud. And she said to Michael, are you so proud? Are you so happy it's coming? And Michael said, you know what? I'm, I'm good. I don't need to reverse this blindness. I'm going to go to college and do college the way I do life. And, and she was so upset. Oh, why, he, why was she so mad? Because she said to me, you know, Kristen, you've dedicated your life to this. Every waking moment 
to this and he doesn't want it. And I said, as a mom, that's my biggest success story that my absolutely is so comfortable in his skin and with his life. And I've done my job so well to get him what he needed. He doesn't see a need for a change. Right. And he's done it so well with what he has right now. So, yeah. I, mean, I mean, to him, to him, it's probably a big major change. I mean, everything he's learned so far has been with this. Yeah. I mean, and he verbalized it very well. He said, the first thing is, if I were to have vision right now and try to go to college, I'd have to learn to to read all different. He's like, yep. he actually said vision would slow him down. And he's right. He's absolutely right. Um, you know, and, and he's, he flip flops. He actually did come to me. This It was heart wrenching when he had to come to me in the spring and say, he said to me, um, how far away are we from that clinical trial? How far away are we? And um, who gets to be enrolled? Because we have one coming to for gene therapy for CRB1 spe- specifically. And I was like, wait a minute, what's happening here? You weren't interested. What, what changed? And he got, he got shot down from a job and his friends saw the interview and they saw that once Michael stood up and put his cane out in front of him, the people interviewing shut down, didn't listen to a word he said, and he was the most qualified. And then it happened again this summer. And then he gets to campus this fall and the state of Pennsylvania failed him and didn't send the people to help him memorize his new apartment complex and the campus. Like his struggle now, and this is what actually, my work for up until now has been motivational, passion, love of my kids. Now I'm furious. I'm furious that this world refuses, refuses to open their minds and get themselves ready for my boys to come out and and see what they can do. I mean, you know, so much accessibility is refused with websites and and um, places, you know, HR departments allowing these things to happen where where they just deny blind folks a job because they're afraid it might be expensive or they don't know how to handle it, you know. So for a while there, I was kicking myself again that I spent so much time in education and research and the K to 12 world, because that's where I was. I I didn't, I, I guess there wasn't enough of me in a day to look ahead to the hiring world, which is what I'm working on now. The HR departments, the, you know, CEOs, CFOs, all of that to say, you guys got to get ready because, these kids are extraordinary, um, and there should be no um, not even giving them a chance. Absolutely. And um, on that note, I want to let our listeners know that there are great resources out there for you. We have listeners from across the globe and across the U.S., and if you find yourself listening to this and thinking that you don't know how you would react in a situation if you were interviewing an individual with blindness, then you know, a lot of what we talk about on our podcast is about equality and equity. And so in addition to seeking out Kristen and her resources, which she's going to share in just a moment, we'd strongly encourage you to visit the Implicit Bias Project through Harvard and take some of their implicit bias quizzes specifically around the ones with um, interacting with individuals with disabilities. Find out if you have any blind spots, any areas that you can grow in The only way that we're going to change the way that we interact with individuals with disabilities is if it starts with us individually on a one-on-one basis. And so our goal with every podcast is to help you reflect and grow 
as well as to create a better and more loving and kind society. And so with that, Kristen, can you tell our listeners where they can find out more about you, your book and your podcast? Yeah. So uh, kristensmedley.com, Kristen with two eyes. <laughs> um, that's where everything is housed. And uh, you can see all the way of a huge worldwide summit coming up for Thriving Blind. Um, the book is there and the book is on Amazon, which is called Thriving Blind. And um, I highly encourage everybody to go look at brilliantlyresilient.net and look up the Brilliantly Resilient podcast and um, uh, community on Facebook. That's where, you know, it's pretty amazing to watch all that I've learned in in dealing with the sucker punch of blindness twice. And that's why I call them, you know, life sucker punch of, of waking up suddenly single after 19 years of marriage, all those big and little sucker punches, navigating all that coming through brilliant, not broken is all culminating in the brilliantly resilient work now. And it's just, it's just extraordinary. And if you go to brilliantlyresilient.net slash freebies, you can get a ton of uh, free resources that we load up um, each week. We come up with a new one to help people reset in their lives and and take action to move forward. That's great. I think that's that's a great note that you know while we've been focusing on what it's been like for you to raise uh, two boys with blindness, really what your message is is about rising back up no matter what mm-hmm. setback life throws at you. And so, friends, we'd strongly encourage you to uh, check out the show notes where we're going to be listing all of this information. Visit Kristen's website, reach out to her if something that she said is really resounded with you. And let's work together to build a more loving and more accepting and inclusive society. Right, Chris? Absolutely. And thank you, Kristen, so very much for sharing your story. And and, um, I'm so proud of your boys. I'm proud of your boys. Oh, thanks. I'm so proud of them too. And, and you know what, I, I, I'm, I'm proud of the work that you guys do and I'm, I'm happy that you're doing it and I'm grateful because this is where it all, it all changes things. Christine, you mentioned it, you know, one-on-one, one person at a time and touching and look at how many lives you're impacting. And I, I'm really grateful. Well, thanks for being on the show today, Kristen. We appreciate this. Thanks everybody. Once every harvest moon, a talk show comes along that is so groundbreaking, raising the bar to such heights that other podcasts step back and say, wow, that show's got it figured out. With a host tempered in focus, commitment, and sheer will, this is The Derek Duvall Show. Pop culture, news, and interviews with fascinating people that channel the great Edward R. Murrow and Walter Cronkite. The Derek Duvall Show. Find him on Twitter and Instagram at Derek Duvall Show and find his new episodes every Wednesday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Podchaser. The Derek Duvall Show. The best thing to happen to hump days since the Geico camel. What, what? You know, that was a very touching interview and it brought back a lot of memories for me of what it was like navigating some of the developmental and health challenges that I went through with raising Ezekiel. Yeah, I bet. I mean, you think that when your kid is first born, you don't have no idea um, usually of there's any, you know, problems, you know, until later on you find this stuff out. But day one, when you're holding the little baby and you're like, oh, you're thinking all these wonderful things that the child is going to end up doing. And if they can't do it, I mean, it's very soul crushing. I can imagine that. Right. But I really love her perspective on how she wanted to set extraordinary expectations for her children and how they rise up to meet them. And I really relate a lot to that because I would hear when Ezekiel was really small and before we had an official diagnosis for him, 
I would hear a lot of things about, well, don't expect him to be able to um, communicate. Like people told me a lot of things like, don't be surprised if he doesn't start talking or if when he speaks, you can't really hear him because he did have a significant hearing problem when he was really little that was not discovered until he was like three. And then once he started to experience some developmental delays and, you know, we went through excruciating times where they thought he had a genetic disorder that was going to be deadly and, you know, going through all of those different things, I just kept holding out hope that he was going to exceed everyone's expectations. And I think he has. Don't you, Chris? Oh, yeah, definitely. Seems normal to me. I mean, I wouldn't know the difference. I wouldn't know if you didn't say anything, I would never have known. And he is. That was the whole thing. He is a typically developing, happy, well-adjusted kid who has exceeded every milestone. And I am so happy to say that, you know, he is living a happy and normal life as a, a typically developing teenager. Well, that is fantastic. And I think that that's the hope that we have for all of our, our boys. I mean, I know that Mason, our little one, has had some learning challenges. And how did you grapple with those, Chris? Well, I mean, um, I jeez, you know, I, I think I took each kid a little differently, you know, and I think I did focus a little more with Mason, helping him out. And I think Jacob did too. What a big brother he's been to Mason, helping him learn different things, math and reading, and showing him different things that he learned. Um, because Mason you know, he really wants to be just like his big brother, um, do everything his big brother does, whatever it is. And Mason really struggles. And he sees that Jacob does, excels in school, does things. So he uses that as an example of like what he wants to be and, and to follow in his big brother's footsteps. I know. And I was so proud of him. Like he has been really focused on his schoolwork now that they're back physically in school. And we were talking about stamps and quantity of stamps that we needed to buy and the price of them at dinner just last week. And he got real quiet. And then I don't know if you remember, he just said, uh, out of the blue, that's 250 cents. And I looked at him and it took me a second. And I remembered he was calculating five stamps at 50 cents each. And he did the mental math in third grade. And he's just learned multiplication in the last four weeks, Chris. That is awesome. I mean, that's amazing. And I just was so excited. And I have the same hopes for all of our boys that they're going to defy all of the odds and exceed all of society's expectations for them and just be remarkable young men. Oh, that is great. I'm so proud of them. And I'm so proud of um, Kristen's story about with her children, how how they've uh, had blindness, but they didn't let them set them back. And they've actually exceeded their handicap. And um, it's been remarkable. Right. And how they don't see it as a disability, that they see it as an asset. And I thought that it was really interesting when she said that for, you know, with trying to pursue a cure for their uh, retinal disease, that the boys didn't necessarily want it because if they were to have to relearn everything that everybody else navigates, like reading physical letters and things, it would actually slow them down. And I just thought that was so insightful of how we can have a perspective on individuals. Um, we call it in education like a deficit mindset, how people can like think, oh, poor them, when really we need to look at all of the assets that individuals experiencing uh, blindness or deafness 
actually how much richer their lives can be and how much we can learn from them. Right, Chris? And on that note, if you would like to learn more about Kristen, we would definitely encourage you to check out our show notes for this episode where you can learn more about her and follow her on social media and donate to the causes that she supports. Right, Chris? That's right. And if you want to find more about us, you always can go to our website. That is www.chrisandchristineshow.com. That is Chris and Christine Show with K's. And the link is always in the show notes. Yep. And so thank you for sticking with us. And we will see you back here next week. Remember this week that life is too short to wake up in the morning with regret. So love the people who treat you right. Forget about the ones who don't and believe that everything happens for a reason. If you get a chance, take it. If it changes your life, let it. Nobody said that it would be easy. They just promised it would be worth it. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Chris. And I'm Christine. And until next week... Keep moving forward.